Welcome back to the How I Sold This podcast, where we impact the stories behind startup acquisitions. I'm JJ Asland, and this week, my co-host Amrit Singh talks with Peter Shalek, the founder of Joyable, which is a digital platform for mental therapy. Joyable is based in San Francisco and went on to raise $15 million before being acquired by Able2 in 2019. We are live. Um, thanks so much for, for joining us, Peter. It's great to be here, Amrit. Thanks for having me. Cool. Uh, well, I think a great thing to do would just be a, to do a quick background on yourself, uh, the two minutes on you and, and Joyable. Sure. Glad to. Um, so uh, I found Joyable now uh, coming up on six years ago. Um, I actually have had a, a long interest in mental health. I grew up wanting to be a therapist is like not one of those things that cool kids did. But uh, my uh, my first jobs in high school working mental health facilities, I was reading Freud and Jung in my free time and wrote my college essays on it. Um, and then ended up going undergrad planning to, to go the medical route and stumbled into an opportunity my freshman year of college to start a business and started this, uh, this small delivery service, ran it for a few years, built a team, sold it, loved it. And uh, that that really convinced me I wanted to be an entrepreneur rather than wanting to uh, to go and be a doctor. So spent a handful of years in healthcare finance, uh, investing in healthcare companies, kind of getting broadly educated, and went back to business school with the goal of starting a mental health company, uh, which was Joyable. And I've been doing that uh, ever since. So founded in, uh, it really started working on it in 2013 and founded in early 2014. Um, so Joyable is uh, a company that's dedicated to uh, we say freeing the world of anxiety and depression. Um, you know, there's this uh, incredibly uh, strange trend right now where uh, in the, over the last 50 years, GDP per capita, the amount of stuff we have has gone up 50x. Um, and yet people are less happy. They're more anxious. They're more depressed now than they've ever been. And, uh, you know, Joyable is really dedicated to to changing that, to thinking about how do we give people access to high quality care? How do we make them, uh, make it so that people can, you know, be their best selves by, uh, by living a life with better mental health. And so we developed, uh, really a, a technology based approach to it, a pretty amazing technology. It's an app that's literally as effective as an antidepressant. Um, you complete, uh, these programs that are based in cognitive behavioral therapy over eight weeks. You get support from a coach who's a full-time employee. And if you complete these activities over, over eight weeks, we've shown that uh, with you know good peer-reviewed outcomes, that uh, your your symptoms, your anxiety, your depression improve by about fifty percent, which is uh, the same thing you'd get from a best-in-class therapist or a best-in-class uh, you know medication support. I mean, we do it where you can do it in the privacy of your own home at one in the morning when you're most anxious, uh, you know, for a fifth the cost of going to face-to-face care. So that's uh, in a nutshell what we uh, what Joyable does. When you'd started this back in 2013, um, digital therapeutics and and even you know CBT online was was nascent. Uh, can you talk for a bit about how how much sort of advocacy was required and what you've seen sort of come around in the segment uh, over the last six years? Yeah, I mean it's it's really matured in a in a really inspiring way in a bunch of different levels. I mean, one is um, I remember uh, just my college buddies. I was back. Um, visiting them in 2013. And I had, uh, I had had a meditation practice for a couple of years and, um, I, you know, I'd said to them, Oh, you know, I was with them and I was meditating and they were just making fun of me nonstop. 
like just literally just like, you know, just laughing at me, having a good time. And then I remember, you know, as recently as a couple of years ago, one of the same guys, one of my close friends reached out to me and said, what's your favorite meditation app? And I was like, oh man, how much the world has changed in five years. Um, so I think that the stigma of mental health broadly is beginning to, uh, to wane. People are, you know, it's still there. It's still quite meaningful, but it's a lot better now than it was even five or 10 years ago. And certainly a lot better than it was 30 years ago. Um, and then I think broadly there's, there's acceptance that software can and maybe even should be a critical part to improving our lives. And I don't think that that was true, you know, 10 years ago or six years ago, the idea that software could be as good as a physician, I think is really skeptical and, uh, people were mostly skeptical about it. Whereas today, I think there are people particularly, uh, in their twenties and thirties who not only think it can be as good, who actually assume that it may be better because of the fact that it's structured, it's consistent, and we generate so much data and efficacy that it allows us to, to learn and to study things that before just literally could not be studied. Right. Yeah. Back in, in 2016, I'd seen that you'd said, um, sort of getting involved in therapy is such a vulnerable purchasing decision. Um, which I really like the the word vulnerable as the operative in that phrase. Uh, and so as a result, overcoming skepticism, uh, with the product is very tough. Uh, do you think that's changed now? I think it's more true now than it's ever been before. I think that people are increasingly skeptical and are more and more looking for proof of quality. And the truth is that the history of behavioral health is just filled with pseudoscience. You know, I mean, everything from Freud to lie on your couch and tell me about your mother to, um, you know, I mean, really horrific things that were done to people. I think that a lot of the reason actually that stigma exists, it's not just because of uh, the the things that people go through and the stereotypes of what people are like. I think it's also because of the stereotypes of what treatment is like and that overcoming that skepticism, um, making it so that people can feel confident in their decision that they'll get something that's not only real and helpful, but that is potentially life changing is ultimately the, the biggest thing we can do to overcome the many barriers to care. I think that yes, yes, price is an issue. Yes. Access is an issue, but those mean nothing if people don't believe they can change. And I think that really starts with truth. Really interesting. Uh, back to Joyable, actually. How uh, how much funding had you taken on over over the course of that six years? Uh, we raised fifteen million dollars. Okay, um, and you know, I'd seen that you'd raised from uh, pretty pretty well known institutional v- VCs, uh, uh, angel investor, and in, in Andy Ratcliffe. Um, can you talk a little bit about the relationship with those investors over time? Yeah, I mean, um, so our our primary investor was Thrive Capital. In New York, and Jared Weinstein, who's a partner at Thrive, one of the kind of two co-founders of the firm, um, was on our board, and I I spoke to him every Friday at uh, at 11 a.m. Pacific for literally five years, um, and they were, uh, I mean, truly and uh, in a way that I'm deeply appreciative. They were great partners through and through. Um, you know, we had moments when we thought Joyable was uh, top of the world. We had moments where it seemed like everything was crashing down. And throughout it all, they were great partners who supported the business, who supported the vision, who were deeply committed to the mission, and and who supported me personally. Um, so uh, I was grateful. Not not that every moment is always easy, but I I never doubted their intentions, and they were always great partners to me. So I was I was very grateful for that. Wow. Um, and then we had we had a whole host of other uh, other investors who were terrific, and um, some of them were angels, some of them were institutional. 
uh, many of them are still people that I'm close with and spend quite a bit of time with today. Um, you know, the, the thing that, uh, that we always looked for was, you know, who was going to be a partner to us, who was going to be helpful to us, who wanted the business to succeed and, and, you know, who we felt like we were, you know, really could work with hand in hand and, uh, felt blessed about that with thrive. And you mentioned Andy before, who was a professor of mine in business school and, uh, a mentor and a friend, um, you know, in terms of just uh, when when you have those tough times, when you have decisions like whether to sell the business or, you know, those sorts of big decisions, big strategic decisions, personnel issues, uh, having the, that list of folks that you trust that you can call, you know, with whom you can be vulnerable is, uh, I found to be absolutely essential. Yeah. Yeah. So in those in those earliest conversations with investors, you know, many VCs like to ask, what's the path to exit? Um did you, was that asked of you and did you have an answer? <laughs> um, yes. And my answer was, uh, I'm not even thinking about it, <laughs> Okay, uh, which was, uh, uh, part, you know, is somewhat the truth. I just, we spend like $201 billion a year on mental health in America. You know, I think you could easily build, I think the, the person who builds the best mental health business will build a company that could very easily be its own standalone public company. And, uh, and could be very, very, very large, you know, tens of billions of dollars of market cap. Um, and so I, I, you know, always had the eye on, we need to build a great business. And if we build a great sustainable business, there will be opportunities for us. Um, at the same time, there was candidly a little bit of posturing, which is no, no venture. I, I had been told, and I think it's true that uh, great entrepreneurs don't think about exit. And so I, I didn't want to signal to investors that I was thinking about exit at all, which it, to be honest, when we started, I certainly wasn't, right. uh, we had so many things to do just to build the business that it wasn't top of mind. But I also, even if I, even if I did have ideas about who acquirers could be, I wasn't going to talk about it at that stage. Got it. Yeah. It'd be great if you could share a little bit about sort of the story and the progression, um, of the business and, and when that possibility of exit, uh, came on the table. Yeah, um, it, it popped up actually a few times throughout the history of the company, and then it was only the last time when we did end up getting acquired by Ableto that we we were sort of seriously willing to consider it. Um, so uh, let's see. So we started working on it in 2013, incorporated the company in January of 2014, uh, raised our first institutional money, which was led by every single round we've ever raised was led by Thrive. Um, so Thrive led our seed round in uh, in uh, I think July of 2014, and that was really based on the idea of let's prove that we can build something that's clinically meaningful for people and that people really want. And we launched our product in March of 2015 and we had uh, just immediately some really phenomenal success. You know, we went, we were millions of dollars of ARR in just a couple months. Um, a lot of, you know, that feeling of things being pulled out of the product or being pulled out of the company, that sort of product market fit feel. And, um, uh, at that point, we had a couple of companies that were interested in digital that just kind of approached us and said, hey, we think what you're doing is interesting. And we at the time said, no, not not our focus. You know, we're, we're going ahead here. Um, we raised some more money from Thrive, a Series A, uh, that summer in July again, so a year after our seed. Um, and everything felt like it was going really, uh, really terrific. Um, and then what happened was over the sort of preceding 18 months, we grew, but the growth felt... Um, good, not great, is what I would say. And uh, we began to see some challenges with the consumer model, uh, the biggest issue of which, simply put, was that the more effective our program was, the, the faster we lost customers. You know, we, by definition, we, uh, the more we help people, which was exactly our mission, it's what we wanted to do, the more that we said, you're in a great place, you can stand on your own. And we, we literally had 
thousands and thousands of people who paid us a hundred dollars a month who wanted to keep paying us. And we said, no, 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 you're, you're okay. The whole point of cognitive behavioral therapy is that, you know, we both fish with you, but we also teach you to fish and you shouldn't need us forever. And, uh, you know, come around the call it middle of 2017 now, um, or sorry, I apologize, sort of middle of 2016 now coming into the end of that year, uh, we realized that the consumer model just wasn't going to work anymore. And so we ended up transitioning from selling to consumers to selling to uh, primarily employers, although also some health plans and other sort of constituencies in the healthcare ecosystem. And as part of that, we uh, had to let a number of people go. We had a number of teams that were focused on consumer marketing and all of this things that were no longer relevant. So we went through a period, we reduced the size of the team by about half, which was um, a really challenging time. Uh, Fortunately, our existing investors all stepped up and supported us, put in a bunch more money um, and gave us runway to go and to to build up this enterprise business. Um, And so that was on a personal level. And I think obviously for a number of people at the company, just a really tough time. Um, but we ended up coming out of that, uh, uh, really, really well. And, you know, um, I think the, the product that we had built from consumer and the team that, you know, stuck with us through that was really phenomenal. And what we found was when we went to the employer market, we ended up getting, uh, traction there, uh, much, much faster than we thought we would and, uh, building a really, uh, uh, a pretty strong foundation there, um, and I should mention, when we went through that transition, we had uh, at least one company approach us and say, hey, as you're in this transition, are you are you interested in you know, potentially joining forces? And we said no at the time. Um, so we ended up doing that. And then uh, we were doing well. We went out at the end of last year to raise the next round of capital, uh, you know, sort of a, almost a Series A, if you want to think of it again, for this, um, you know, now that we're an enterprise business, having done this kind of reset and focus from consumer to enterprise. And uh, ended up with um, with almost serendipitously, we met with an investor, uh, Yuman Choi, who's a partner at Bank Capital Ventures, who's on the board of Able to, and he said, "Hey, I'm interested in what you're doing, and we could potentially invest standalone. Um, also, you should chat with uh, with or the CEO of Able to Trip, who's now my boss, and uh, see if there's a partnership opportunity." Um, and so I had a conversation with Trip. Uh, we realized in that conversation for the first time that. Really, it felt like the vision of where Able2 was going and where Joyable was going really aligned, and the strategies of the companies aligned, and it felt uh, actually interesting. And so we ended up, you know, we were in a fundraising process, so we ended up with, uh, with you know, standalone opportunities. We could have raised more money and and gone on that path, but, um, you know, for me, I found this was the first time that the it felt like both the right strategic fit for the business and the best thing for our customers and uh, and the right path forward. So. We kind of on the third time around, we we took the offer, and uh, you know now we've been with the company for coming on four months. Yeah, interesting. I I wonder too before that, and as you were evaluating investment um, in earlier rounds, had strategics and strategic investors come to the table with interest, um, and and what was the thought there? Yeah, it's really we never had the opportunity for strategic. We met with some strategic investors along the way, but. Um, our seed, as you pointed out, digital therapeutics weren't a thing really back then. And so there wasn't really strategic interest um, at that stage. We had, you know, uh, venture interest. Uh, Omada was early but was doing well, and people were excited about the idea of a digital therapeutic for behavioral health. Uh, it sort of seemed like a natural fit. Um, when we went to raise our Series A, um, we ended up getting kind of a, a, an unsolicited interest from someone. 
And that spurred Thrive to, to step up and to take the Series A themselves. And so we never went to market. And the, the firm that showed interest happened to have been a financial investor. Um, and then when we did the transition from consumer to enterprise, it really was just looking at our existing investors and, and saying, are you guys uh, excited to continue supporting us? And they all said yes. So um, we were talking to some strategics. And in fact, if we had raised this round instead of selling, we might have gone with a strategic. Um, but... Uh, but as it turned out, we ended up, you know, really being financial through and through until the last minute. Got it. If if other founders out there are listening, would you recommend, uh, and maybe you've heard stories of other folks sort of bringing in strategics as a sort of staged path to acquisition? Um, any thoughts on that? Um, I think in healthcare, having strategic investors is a really interesting dynamic. Um, and in fact, Able to has a number of strategic investors, Aetna and United and a uh, number of the blues plans, as well as Sandbox, kind of the central blues plan or the central blues venture fund. Um, in general, I think taking strategic investment as a stepping stone to acquisition is a mistake because it really boxes in your opportunities, especially in a world in which you have competitors. It's really challenging for um, if you take strategic investment from company A, uh, when you go to sell, if you want to sell to company B, who's a competitor of company A. It, it really creates some challenges. So I wouldn't suggest taking strategic investors for that purpose. I do think that in certain industries, and healthcare is one of them, that having strategic investors is a uh, really uh, potentially very helpful thing in terms of your product development, in terms of distribution. Um, and the main thing I would, I would encourage there is that if you can, and this is tricky to thread the needle, but if you take one strategic investor, try to take two because then you don't end up as sort of, uh, you know, perceived as being aligned only with one key player. It's better to have that diversity. Can we maybe also talk about uh, the transition period you brought up, um, the sort of the time frame in which you you laid off a number of employees uh, as you're reframing the business and the strategic thesis? Uh, you know, what is it like to sort of maintain morale and uh, keep people excited? It's hard. Um, it, it's really hard. Uh, it's hard personally, and it's, it's certainly hard for the people, hardest for the people we let go, um, and then hard for the team that stays as well. Um, what, what we found is that the best thing you can do is just treat people really well and be very direct and honest. And that worked really well for us. So we ended up, you know, we, we did a lot to treat the people who left well, you know, we, and this was with our investors too. We restructured their options. So they all, were able to own their equity. If people hadn't fully vested, you know, hadn't reached their one-year cliff, we restructured it so that they were all equity holders. Um, we paid what little severance we could. Uh, I personally did references for probably half the people, um, and you know, we we connected them into our network, um, and that was great for the people who left. Uh, a number of them were still close with and have found great roles and are really excited about. And it also was helpful for the people who stayed. Um, because for them to know that we cared that much about their colleagues, their friends, uh, made a made a big difference. And we were fortunate. We ended up, uh, you know, in the year after uh, after laying off half the team, not a single person uh, left the team who we had kept. And I think that's uh, really a testament to the um, to the people who were here, their dedication to the mission, and also just to you know our being really clear and direct and you know compassionate in the way that, uh, that everyone here kind of went through that process. Yeah. Did that clarity and directness carry forward into the time, uh, of the acquisition? You know, how, how far in advance were folks looped into that, that that was a possibility? 
Yeah. You know, we always were, we got asked about acquisitions, um, periodically by the team. And we were always, we have, we had a weekly team meeting and we tried to encourage people to be really direct Our for one of our company values is be direct and transparent. And so people asked about it all the time. We always told people that it was a possibility, but not a focus. And that was really true. I mean, all the way through, we actually were, I mean, we had, as I mentioned, you know, the team knew everything about the fundraise. They knew when we had a term sheet, they knew when we were, you know, all the things we were thinking about. And really the acquisition came up pretty quickly for us. And so um, they got looped in, you know, relatively early in the sense that it was a quick conversation and they got looped in relatively late in the sense that it all moved very quickly. And, uh, and, you know, we, we were transparent with folks about what we were trying to do and why. And I think that support made a big difference for them. Yeah. How, uh, how much time passed between that first conversation with trip and then the, the close? Oh, uh, three months. Okay. Something like that. Um, and do you mind sharing a little bit more about what that was like? You know, how, how soon was a price on the table? Uh, how, how much of the discussion was strategic versus financial? Yeah. You know, uh, early on, it wasn't even a, at first, it wasn't an acquisition conversation. It was just a, um, it was just a, uh, you know, we should do a partnership. Our products are very complementary. We essentially have both of us are, are uniquely focused on quality in the behavioral health space. And we could talk more about that, but, um, we essentially have, we have a high quality digital intervention and they have a very high quality face-to-face intervention. And we both realized up front that there's no one size fits all in mental health. Different people have different needs clinically. They have different personal preferences and that putting these things together could be a, you know, could help simplify the experience for someone who needs help. They don't need to self-diagnose or say, should I download a yoga app or should I talk to a therapist or my PCP or a psychiatrist? Eventually, we just want them to be able to come to us and we can find them the right support and they can be confident to the point about about uh, skepticism, vulnerability. They can be confident that the care they get is important. And so the early conversations were really all about that, about where we wanted the businesses to go. And it was once we had that, that we were, you know, that Trip said to me, we could do this as a partnership, but maybe this would be more powerful if we put the companies together. Um, and we were, you know, knee deep in a fundraising process. And I said, I, I'm not sure, but yeah, I like, I like the alignment here, but I'm not sure where we're going. Um, if that's right for, for where the business is. Um, and so I don't remember the exact timeline, but we probably got the first, the first conversation, maybe about halfway through, we got a first indication of value. Um, you know, kind of a price was put on the table and then there was obviously a bunch of back and forth and discussion. Um, and then all of the, the documentation and paperwork and everything that goes into an acquisition, which is a shocking amount of time and legal fees, but that's, that's, that's neither here nor there. Of course. Uh, uh so I, you know, I wonder too, and the strategic thesis here is really interesting. Um, how much, I mean, how much did you have to push for? for strategic things that you cared for, uh, maintaining sort of Joyable's independent vision or keeping it a brand in and of itself, uh, or even your role, uh, after the move? You know, it, uh, I don't think this is normal for what it's worth, but it just lined up really well. Um, so it, if you had asked able to, if you'd asked trip what his vision for able to was, and if you had asked me what my vision for Joyable was, they would have sounded eerily similar. And, really the the thing that brought it together was just it, it, even if you asked for the mission the purpose of the company we both would have said we're trying to 
solve an access problem that exists in behavioral health, and we're doing it in the highest quality way. And that we think that the key, the winning thing in behavioral health is having something that long-term is truly life-changing for people. And that that you can do not only in a way that sounds good, but that is quantifiable, research-based, measured. And the only difference was that they decided to start predominantly with, uh, with humans, with a therapy network. And we decided to start predominantly with technology. So the vision aligned really quickly, even in that first conversation. Um, I didn't ask at all about my role, uh, honestly, until, uh, you know, probably midway through the process. Um, I think it, it fit well that, uh, you know, I'm, I tend to be more of a product oriented CEO. Um, and there was, uh, an opportunity for, for me to step in. They were looking for someone to lead the product team, uh, and to lead product broadly for the company. And I was able to step into that role, but it wasn't really a conversation until, um, in fact, after I mentioned it was about halfway through that we got an indication of value. Um, it wasn't until after that, that we even got into those conversations. Yeah. You know, what was Andy saying during this time? What was Jared thinking at the folks at Collaborative? Yeah, you know, it really, um, it was mixed. The advice that we got was mixed. I think that there was a lot of uh, enthusiasm for what the company had done, particularly since the transition from consumer to enterprise and some of the momentum we had. We were launching, uh, you know, when we sold, we had, I think I can say this, we'd grown basically 4X in the past 12 months. And we had some uh, really large, uh, in fact, our largest uh, deals ever that we're launching. And I think there was enthusiasm and momentum there. And some folks felt that that was, uh, you know, that that was a sign that we should really keep pushing. And they gave advice that way. And other folks were of the mind that, and what ultimately, you know, my point of view was that there was a lot of strategic value to lining up both in the product, which I spoke a little bit about, as well as in uh, distribution, where Ableto just had uh, and has these wonderful relationships with some of the largest health plans in the country, and that by becoming part of that, we could get Joyable into millions and millions of people's hands uh, years and years before we would have been able to do it standalone. I thought of it as the acquisition basically pulled forward the future for Joyable. It allowed us to distribute faster and to build product faster than we would have otherwise. You know, looking back now, um, anything anything you would have done differently? Oh, there are a number of things. How much time do we have? <laughs> um, uh, I mean, there are uh, many mistakes that I made along the journey, many things that I personally would have done differently that um, knowing what I know now could have made uh, Joyable a, a better company and could have helped us help our, our, our clients, which is what we call our users, more, um, and that could have allowed us to you know, to be a better place to work. And, and I think that part of the journey of entrepreneurship is making a lot of mistakes and you have to be the kind of person who enjoys making mistakes and because it, they, they teach you something. Yeah. I wonder if, uh, if you might, if you might actually touch on the, the economic incentive to keep people paying for a product, even after you've, you've helped them, uh, or, or even sort of the, the value capture more holistically. It's a great question. Um, I would not have changed the pricing model we had. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you why. I think one of the things we did terrifically well is that we said, uh, you know, we do, we're going to align our business model with clinical best practice. And so we're not going to, you know, create a faux maintenance product or try to engage people in ways that are unnatural or that doesn't benefit them for the purpose of charging them. Um, that said, I think we made a mistake in 
I had this whole thesis of you, if we had talked and you were investing, I would have told you passionately in 2015 that in healthcare, people don't own customers, you know, that that's, you know, in, you know, if you want to build a recurring revenue business, Facebook owns customers forever is the idea. But in healthcare, if you're doing knee replacements, in theory, if you sell those knee replacements, you should do that once for one customer forever. Um, but that, well, you don't own the customer, you can own a channel. And that that channel, you know, every year there are more and more people who need knee replacements and demographics are favorable. Those numbers are actually growing. I would have made the same argument for behavioral health. Um, and uh, some people found that compelling. Uh, on the other hand, it turned out to be, at least through the channels through which Joyable was marketing, totally wrong. Like totally and completely wrong. Um, which is if we had built you know, an SEO driven business, or if we had built a channel driven business, like, uh, go through health plans or through employers or through someone that might be true, but we were, we were primarily doing direct to consumer marketing and there was just no long-term, we were not building that long-term channel ownership. We were collecting people one by one. And even if we had decent unit economics, uh, we were just on a treadmill. And so if I could go back in time, I would, uh, I would change where we started, instead of trying to build that consumer business, I would have said, uh, we're going to do consumer, but we're going to do it as R&D. We're going to invest X million dollars in it. And then all of our other efforts are, we're not investing in any, any paid marketing, except for the purpose of learning to make our product better. You know, we're not acquiring people to grow. We're going to either use a organic channel or we're going to go and invest in these other channels that have, uh, have sort of long-term defensibility and where you don't need to acquire somebody each time you help someone. Yeah. I mean, today as upstarts try to sell to employers, one thing they're seeing is that benefits managers are sort of inundated with new tools and new offerings to sift through. Uh, and it, it can be very much the, the case that, you know, selling to employers today as a, as a startup is, is like death by a thousand cuts. Do you believe that statement to be true? I mean, do you think that the landscape is different now uh, and the channels are more saturated now than, than they were? I think the channels are more saturated now than they were. And when you talk to folks who run benefits, they have literally, they get like, you know, 10 emails a day from innovative companies. So you're talking about, you know, hundreds and hundreds of them a quarter that they're getting, uh, you know, that they're getting. So um, I do believe that they're absolutely inundated. I don't think that that it makes it so that you cannot start a good business through that channel. Um, I just think it has much more to do with being at the right place at the right time. You know, in employer benefits, it, there are sort of these waves of adoption. You know, if you went to, um, if you look at the way that uh, the growth track for somebody like Omada and Livongo and One Medical in the employer market, and this is some of what, what we did when we made this transition, you saw that all of their growth curves actually look surprisingly similar in the first four or five years of their life um, in terms of their adoption curves. And the reason that they look so similar is because you have these incredible network effects within the employer business. Everybody talks, they go to the same conferences, they go to conference board, they go to NBGH. They're all getting referenced by the same consultants and brokers. And if you can break through into that, you have a great setup. If you can't break through, it becomes quite challenging. And uh, the thing that I do believe is that as a startup, you really cannot control uh, whether your product is the thing that everyone is adopting. You just have to be at the right place at the right time. And so if we if we tried to sell to employers, one of the ironic things about what I just said is if we tried to sell to employers a behavioral health solution in 2013, 
I think we would have failed immediately. Um, but it just so happens that right now, if you talk to employers about their top three priorities, behavioral health is on the list for 89% of them. And uh, that's that's just kind of right place, right time. Yeah. You mentioned, uh, you know, there's a, a lot of the stigma around uh, behavioral health is as a result of uh, some pretty poor outcomes for patients in the past. Um, and, you know, behavioral health is a catch-all for a lot of things. It includes CBT, but there's other ther- therapeutic types uh, in desensitization, uh, I think, uh, aversion therapy. Uh, what do you what do you think about sort of those uh, other maybe even hypnosis coming into the digital realm um, and and uh, and more broadly like is there room for sort of snake oil salesmen maybe it makes it easier for snake oil salesmen in in digital? I think that there's a lot of a lot of risk of that and um, when you look right now there are if I had this I gave a talk at Mental Health America two years ago and talked about how technology was damaging mental health and I think that. There's something like 10,000 mental health apps in iOS App Store right now, in Apple's App Store, and less than 1% of them have any form of peer review or publication. And um, I think that's a huge disservice, and I don't, I don't think it's fair to people who are, uh, you know, oftentimes in one of their most vulnerable states who are looking for help to, to get something that is uh, snake oil or damaging. Um, I think that it's a real risk, and I hope that there's good uh, third-party, honestly, validation of quality. It's one of the things that at Joyable we were always trying to push to do and to help set up standards for. You know, what, in theory, digital intervention should be a place to lead the charge, not just for digital, but for face-to-face, too. What if we said that everyone who goes through a treatment has to, you know, has to take a clinically validated assessment throughout that treatment? And what if we had to share that data publicly? We'd be in a place where now not only could you tell what digital is good and what digital is bad, but actually we'd be able to show that digital is, uh, you know, doing something is leading the way for what face-to-face care could be and could really make it so that when someone's going to get help, they could say objectively and independently, this is, this is good quality care and this is not. So that's where uh, where I'd like it to get to, um, but it, it does still feel like we're a ways away from from that sort of uh, uh, independent and collaborative uh, solution that we need. Yeah, guess on on that point, what would you what would you like to see? Sort of a request for startups, um, anything that anything that you'd like to see sort of come up, uh, or or even something that uh, maybe would be another acquisition opportunity for able to. I think I think that. Um, that the question of uh, how and what improvement means is actually not that complicated. And there's a lot of incentive for companies to obfuscate it because it sounds better. You know, oh, the average person uses our app, you know, 26.2 times per month or whatever it is, which are uh, meaningful statistics in, in the consumer world. But from a healthcare world, all we need to talk about is clinically validated outcomes. You know, how many people used it? Of those who used it, how many people finished it? Of those who finished it, how you know what was their average improvement? And of course, there's you know meaningful amounts to improve. We could make each of those measures. We could be better and more sophisticated about how we quantify them. But relative to uh, just doing nothing, they are so vastly superior. The measures we have are actually pretty good. They're not perfect, but they're like you know ninety percent sensitivity and specificity. They're pretty good. And so if we 
you know, my, my, I guess my ask for other entrepreneurs is to say, um, you know, clearly define what helping someone means and be consistent and transparent about that. Um, and if you do that, I think it'll, it'll advance the world and it'll also help your business. By the way, what got Joyable acquired was the quality of our clinical outcomes. So, um, you know, I, I think it's a worthwhile investment. Yeah. Who, uh, what, what kind of acquirers do you imagine to be active in the, in the, in the space in the future? Um, I think there's a ton of logical people out there who, uh, there's a lot of interest in behavioral right now from employers, um, and from health plans. It's, uh, kind of the hottest spot. I don't know. The hottest makes it sound flip, but, uh, it was described to me by one of the leading consultants. One of the large consultant agencies has an internal innovation team. And they said that it was the quote hottest space in, uh, in healthcare right now. And so I think that creates a lot of interest. It creates interest from health plans. So the United's of the world, Aetna's of the world, the Anthem's of the world. Um, I think it creates interest from uh, uh, from non-behavioral health companies, you know, uh, particularly digital ones. So from uh, you saw Livongo bought MyStrength, uh, Omada bought the right to Lantern's assets. There's just a lot of uh, consolidation. Um, and then I think that there will be increasing interest from primary care in particular. So uh, if you want to go kind of, you know, digital or new, I think folks like uh, One Medical or um, some of the primary care groups that are out there, whether it's uh, uh, Paladina or, uh, you know, maybe it's a specific chronic condition management company like DaVita, uh, where behavioral health is so impacting to overall cost that they want to be involved. Um, so I, I, it's an interesting space because there's, it's not like there are two or three logical acquirers. I think there are uh, tons and yeah. tons of them out there. Cool. A good way to, to wrap up the discussion is, you know, any advice for founders who are approaching an exit and thinking through how they should sell the business and maybe outside of uh, even healthcare? Yeah. Um, uh, I guess a few things. One, uh, as trite as it sounds, companies are bought, not sold. And so, uh, you know, I think having always building a company, assuming that you'll be standalone and trying to make it work in that context is the best way to get acquired. Um, and you know, don't, don't get too caught up in sales process. If you build a product that people love that has a good business, that that's the best way to get acquired. Um, uh, the second thing I would, I would advise, I'd say that, uh, selling your company is, um, it's a one-time decision and, uh, it's a really, it's a bittersweet thing to let go of something that you've poured so much of your time and energy into. And so make sure that you really, uh, think through and are, uh, and, and feel confident in the decision you're making. Um, you know, particularly, uh, you know, I, I was fortunate, um, in that it felt like the acquisition really aligned with the strategic goals I had and that I thought were best for all of the stakeholders, for our shareholders, for our customers, for our employees. Um, but, uh, I know that that's not always the case. And I have some friends who've, who've had uh, more difficult uh, more difficult paths down that road. So I'd encourage folks to think that way. Um, and then the last one is, uh, I think, you know, being direct and operating from confidence always helps in any negotiation, you know, whoever that is, you know, just saying exactly what you believe and what you think and, uh, making that clear to, you know, whomever the other side is, is uh, the most effective way to, to get done what you want to get done. As always, thank you for listening to this episode of How I Sold This. 
You can find more information about the podcast as well as share your feedback and ideas with us at howisoldthis.co. 